Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some wonderful people helping us along the way. Now, middle school is a time of seismic shifts. Everything is changing from friendships and relationships to hormones, expectations, and not to mention the physical, intellectual, moral, social, and emotional growth of your child. So many things happening in just such a short amount of time. Fundamental questions are floating around the heads of adolescents, such as who am I and am I normal and do I fit in? Middle schoolers are thrust into a changing environment where adult involvement is reduced and their own skills become vital as they figure out exactly what they're going to allow to be their social and personal currency. Skills such as making good friend choices, negotiating conflict, considering other people's perspectives, cultivating their own passions and recognizing limitations, and of course, making responsible, healthy, ethical choices, these become paramount. Yes, there are a lot of things that these middle schoolers must experience, and they're experiencing things that bridge the gap between childhood and teenhood. And thankfully, thankfully, we don't have to go it alone. Phyllis Fagel, LCPC, is the author of Middle School Matters that just came out this week. The counselor at Sheridan School in Washington, D.C., a psychotherapist at the Chrysalis Group, and a frequent contributor to the Washington Post and other national publications. She is also a regular columnist for the Association for Middle Level Education and Capin Magazines, and she consults and speaks throughout the country. Phyllis graduated with honors from Dartmouth College, received a master's degree in journalism at Northwestern University, and she earned her master's degree in counseling from Johns Hopkins University. She tweets at P. Fagel and blogs at www.phyllisfagel.com and all these links will be in the show notes. I'm so excited to have you on the show. So welcome Phyllis Fagel to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you for having me. Happy to talk to you as well. Well, I'm really excited about this. I've been looking forward to this for a quite some time. I read your book, Middle School Matters. It's so good, and I'm so excited about talking about it today. But before we get into the meat of the matter, before we go into everything, for those who haven't gotten their hands on your book yet, what gets you up in the morning, and what inspired you to focus on middle school and the key skills middle schoolers need to thrive? So I think that middle school is probably the most critical but most neglected phase of childhood development. When you think about toddlers, if they are screaming, you don't say, you know what, I'm going to sit this phase out and come back when they're three, and then I'll teach them how to use their words. Mm. And we... We almost do the same thing with middle schoolers, only we don't get in there. We sort of view it as a time to back off. It kind of is scary. We might have our own memories of that time period. Mm -hmm. And 
we let our children go it alone. And it's the perfect time to coach them and to focus on raising good people with solid values. And they're very malleable, but they're also intellectually capable. So I view it as a prime opportunity to parent that is unfortunately too often neglected in favor of either the early childhood phase or later when kids are in high school and the stakes seem higher and they're applying to college. Mm, mm. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, you you talk about right at the top of your book and actually several moments weaved throughout the book that people often respond to you when you mention you're writing about or you're working with middle school is that this was the worst years of life, you know, whether they're talking about their own or they're talking about what their kids went through. Parents and educators seem to both feel powerless and horrified by what they hear about and see (laughs) happening uh, from bullying to cheating or lying to tech abuse or sexual development and experimentation. So it's no secret that parents tend to dread the middle school years in many cases. So why do you think there's so much fear around this phase? Well, first of all, it's a lot easier to teach a kid how to eat solid foods or to, you know, let go of the pacifier than to take on the the endless abyss that is social media and mm. all of these unknowns at a time when you really have less control over your child's life. But I think what really gets people uh, scared of the phase is their own memories, what they're bringing to the table. Mm. And one of the things I like to dispel is this idea that middle school was this horrible time, even if that's how they remember it, because (laughs) it's a time of such intensity and you have so little perspective and so little life experience and we're wired to remember the negative anyway. So we, we as adults, when we look back on that phase, we're remembering how we felt at the time. It's not that those experiences were necessarily inherently so much worse than experiences we had at other times in our life. Mm, mm, mm. You know, we were going through puberty too. Yeah, yes, I know. And it's true. We do seem to categorize that area of life. I think you and I both know that that there are some really great aspects of middle schoolers. They can be intuitive and interesting and empathetic and enthusiastic and bright. But middle schoolers are often... I would say seen for what they lack, the drama they bring, the mistakes they make. And you have written a great deal about middle schoolers being misunderstood and sort of unfairly maligned. So what are some of the misconceptions that adults have about kids that age? You know, I think you touched on one when you talked about how even though they're actually quite empathetic and very Uh, social justice oriented and and have a very strong moral compass, we tend to focus on them as either being drama seekers or as being mean. Uh, Not to say that they're not making mistakes or trying on mean behavior. They 100% are. But I think that we overstate how much they crave drama. In my experience as both a therapist and a middle school counselor, most middle schoolers actually strongly dislike drama, especially if it's from their parents. Mm. Uh, They're not looking for drama. They're just having intense emotions and they're looking for a way and they lack a lot of the skills. Like they may not know how to not engage with someone who isn't at the core of the drama, or they might not know how to manage those intense emotions that are coming along with the experience. And so we can coach them through it, but it's not that they're seeking the drama itself. Mm -hmm. Good point. So that's one, that's one misconception. Yes. Another big misconception is that they, if they are quiet or silent, that that, that it means they don't want to be engaged, that they want to check out. And, 
kids in middle school very much want to share what's going on in their life. It's just that you have to do it in a way that they can tolerate. It can't be too personal or too intrusive. And you have to time it right. And you may have to get creative. But it's not that they don't want to talk. Silence does not suggest that they want to be disengaged. Mm, I know you speak uh, even directly about uh, uh, boys. You were, I know you were quoting somebody when you were talking about boys who um, seem very silent during those times and, and parents often and coaches often look at these boys and say, oh, they, they have just no interest in sharing. The girls are much more apt to share. And you disagreed with that as well. You also felt like, no, boys do want to share as well, right? Exactly. And that was Dr. Uh, Ken Ginsberg yes. who said that. And he, he has a website, parentandteen.com, that's fantastic, that has a lot of tips for engaging with kids. And what he talks about is that when we see boys, it's not that they don't want to talk, but we may need to be patient or we may need to engage with them differently. And some of the tips that I have in the book include, you know, talking while playing video games or while in the car, anywhere where you don't have to have that direct eye contact and not asking questions that uh, they don't know where you're going with it. If they think it's a question leading to somewhere dangerous, they're not going to want to engage. If they think that they will invite drama by answering, then they will um, uh, also not engage. So it's not about them not wanting to talk. They want to share, but you have to do it on their terms and not on your terms. Right. And they also don't want to be judged, right? Exactly. And nobody wants to be judged. And if you think about the developmental phase, all of them think that you're, they're being judged 100% of the time. There's that imaginary audience. You know, they're constantly wondering how they're how they look in the eyes of the people that they're talking to and, and in their peers' eyes. And so for adults engaging with teens, you have to be super careful not to transmit any judgment whatsoever because if they're going to err on one side or the other, they're going to assume you're being critical. Mm-hmm. So that means your body language, your tone, are you listening carefully? Are you distracted? Are you asking questions that suggest that you don't approve of what they're doing. And that can, it can take a lot of practice for parents to have that poker face. But if you can perfect it, you will get far, far more information mm-hmm. from your middle schooler. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know. <laughs> I was talking to Michelle Ikerd, who talks about like that, that um, Botox brow that you're <laughs> supposed to do where you like, don't crinkle your face at all. And I love that when she talks about <laughs> talking to your middle schooler, like, don't scrunch up your forehead. Pretends to pretend there's Botox in there, and it's just totally relaxed at all times. Oh, that's yeah, that's great advice. And I think related to that, when kids do what feels like pushing buttons, you know, they're testing your last nerve, or they're uh, questioning your rules, or they're defying your request to complete a chore, whatever it happens to be, often what they're really doing is trying to figure out what's going on in our heads. They're Mm. not really looking to upset us. Uh, Arguing uh, is actually a form of respect because it shows that they care what you think. So Mm. reframing how you view those exchanges with with your child that feel like button pushing conversations, I think is very helpful and very useful. Wow. I really like that. These arguments are are, are probably ways to, to connect and for them to show you, no, no, this is important to me. That's why I'm arguing with you about it. That's really interesting. Exactly. And if, if as a developmental imperative, if it's their job to pull away and differentiate and separate during this phase, how can they do that if they don't know what you think? Mm. And the best way to know what you think is to 
is to argue with you. Oh, so good. So your your book, I, I just really love the way it was organized, is it's designed to take deep dives into some of the most frustrating areas of middle school, whether we're talking about gossip or bullying, cheating or lying, sexuality or sex itself. So why would you say this is the perfect time for parents to get and stay involved? And do you have any specific tips for maintaining open communication at an age when they really do seem to be pulling away and, as you mentioned, individuating? Part of it is managing our own anxiety as parents, and I say this as the parent of two kids who went through middle school and one who just started. So mm-hmm. I really do empathize and relate, and as parents, we just want to get in there and fix, mm-hmm. particularly when we see something that is such an easy tweak to uh, create that bubble and make their life perfect. And so some of this is managing our own anxiety and reminding ourselves that they're going to hit bumps during middle school, and that's good for them. It's going to build their resilience. It's going to help them learn these problem-solving skills. However, that doesn't mean we should be backing off entirely. We do want to maintain open communication. And what I recommend is that you view yourself as a coach, you know, not a manager, not a momager or, you know, a, a dad who's managing, but as a coach who is really watching their child make decisions, asking follow-up questions, helping them debrief, helping them come up with potential solutions to whatever it is that they're dealing with. If they have a problem, if they failed a quiz, what are your options? What are some things you could do to solve this problem? And if you want to engage in a way that doesn't turn them off, you almost never go wrong if you start from a place of curiosity. Mm-hmm. If you're asking questions, uh, not judgmental questions, like, do you think you should have done more homework? <laughs> yeah. Why did you do, <laughs> do you that? Think you should have studied I asked more a question. Five minutes before. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, you don't get you don't get extra credit for those questions. No. But if if you're feeling anxious and you're feeling like you want to either jump in and solve or you want to challenge their way of doing something, if you can take a breath and turn it into a question. I'm curious. I noticed that you've been and hanging out more with uh Mark and it seems like you don't laugh as much with Mark as you do when you're with uh John. You know, what do you think that's about? Mm. So you're 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 still coaching them and pointing out who seems to be making them happy or who might be a good friend or you might point out, oh, I noticed that when you weren't at school for a few days, John brought you your homework. You didn't even ask him. What a good friend. That was so nice. You want to be teaching them what it means to be a good friend and choose a good friend or what it means to have solid values and what it means to be kind and honest and and really taking advantage of this phase to solidify their values at a time when they're very much interested in what you think and and yet intellectually capable of absorbing your thoughts but you don't want to do it in a way that does it for them and that's the challenge it's walking the line between helping them and invading their privacy and hindering their autonomy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, that's a very, very difficult line to walk. Right. So, I mean, just to put high beams on that, what we we're saying is that you don't want to be saying to your child, hey, looks like John's a much better friend than that Mark kid you're hanging out with who is clearly, you know, a downer uh, because... <laughs> You know, you're, you're, um, then you're providing the judgment. And when you're providing the judgment, it seems that that's when the middle schoolers push back and then have to pick up the other end of the rope and say, no, no, 
that's not what Mark's about. Here's what Mark's about, and you don't know what you're talking about. I, I would imagine that would be yes, great. <laughs> I, I love the I love the analogy of the pulling the rope because it's so true. When you drop the rope, you get so much farther. And the reality is, even if you do spell it out for them, even if they themselves know that someone isn't a great friend, or whenever they hang out with Mark, they end up throwing hamburgers in the cafeteria and end up in the principal's office. Whatever happens to be not going smoothly when he's with that particular friend, even if they know all of that, it can take a shockingly long time for kids to realize that they're sacrificing themselves and to actually want to move on. Mm. And that's just part of growing up and part of middle school and part of that shifting friendship phase of development. Mm. And, and it's, it's how they learn. Right. And if you're doing it in the way that you're suggesting, and they take on uh, the the other end of the rope that you're, you hope that they take on, just a, seeing something from a new perspective, not that you've judged, but they, they sort of are able to see it, then it becomes their idea. And then, of course, they're talking to somebody, a friend of theirs, and they're like, you know what I realize? You know, that Mark, he <laughs> makes me feel blah, 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 depressed, and this, that, and the other thing is not really great. And you're like... <laughs> ding, 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 you know, um, <laughs> you're like, wow, I wonder where he got that from. But it, it becomes their thought process, which can be much more powerful than just handing over yours. Exactly. You're not giving them anything to rebel against. You don't, you're not giving them any reason to lie about who they're with. Mm -hmm. You know, I think most kids understand what, when parents pry, if it's related to safety, but for almost everything else, there's really no need to know every single detail. So you can just share your observations, ask questions in a gentle, curious tone, and help them come to some conclusions on their own. So you're not backing off entirely, mm -hmm. and you're not uh, ignoring the reality of what exists. You're just communicating differently mm -hmm. than you might have when they were six or eight. Really good advice um, to, to take with you. Now, let's take a deeper look into some of the areas that are, are most concerning for, for middle schoolers and the adults who love them. When you discuss the need for the skill of, let's say, being able to make responsible, healthy, and ethical decisions, mm -hmm. you mentioned, and I circled in the book, <laughs> that it's best to help your middle schooler formulate a plan when they're in tricky situations before it happens. And you say, come up with hypothetical situations and then help them come up with what they might say. For example, if you're pressured to take drugs, you might say, that stuff makes me sick or mm -hmm. I'm not into that, thanks. So can you give us some examples of maybe hypothetical situations, um, whether it's tech-related or sex-related or cheating-related or, or throwing hamburgers in the lunchroom that you might <laughs> tell parents to discuss, and, and maybe some of the phrases that you might encourage parents to offer or as part of a brainstorming to combat, combat those tricky situations? Sure. So, you know, I think... Part of the, the the beauty of this is really looking at what middle schoolers want to know, and that's something that I get to hear every day and that I share in the book, which is the kinds of questions and the kinds of uh, ethically murky scenarios that middle schoolers themselves are thinking about, because if it's relevant and if you're posing something that they are already worrying they may have to encounter, they'll be so much more engaged. They're interest-based learners anyway. So when I talk to, I teach uh, health and wellness, and when I talk to middle schoolers, the kinds of things they ask are not always the things I would have predicted that they would ask. You know, they might want to know, what happens if I'm at a party and there's drinking and the cops show up? Should I run away mm -hmm. or should I stay there? Or they might say, um, what if uh, everybody is playing is, is playing truth or dare and I don't like the dare 
what am I, what should I do? Hmm. Or I don't like the truth. What should I do? Or, uh, what if I, uh, see somebody's boyfriend is really being mean to them? Am I, should I say something or not? Mm -hmm. And then you can supplement those kinds of questions with any kind of, uh, dilemma that will foster critical thinking skills. It doesn't even have to be related to whether or not they post something super mean, you know, at two in the morning or, you know, whether or not they take a deep breath before responding to somebody else's mean comment. You know, there's lots of things that will come up just in the course of their middle school years that you'll be able to address in real time. But beyond that, you know, just having conversations at the dinner table about things like, would you rather be the best player on the worst team or the worst player on the best team? Uh, do you think that uh, kids should be able to vote at a younger age than they are currently or drink at a younger age? And just get those pros and cons out there and get them thinking about things in a way that, that gets them anticipating scenarios. But even beyond that, at an even more granular level, what you want to be doing is imprinting your values on them so that when they are in these dilemmas, they can go back to their core values and say, is this decision consistent with, you know, in my family, I know that it's really important. We value safety and respect and we value kindness. And is this, which of these two decisions is consistent with my family's values? Mm, and mm -hmm. more often than not, they'll lean in the right direction. Right, because that so sort of becomes to really label them, mm -hmm. and that sort of becomes part of their gut and their heart, you know, and what what they are are thinking for themselves as well. But I'm wondering if so, if they're in a situation where, let's say, they are at a party and mm -hmm. somebody offers them something to drink, and your values, you've been, you know, talking about your values as safety and this person is doesn't think that they know these people all that well. So the safety is mm -hmm, sort of mm -hmm. compromised and they know that they would be frowned upon in your family because you have a, an ethical dilemma with underage people drinking, let's say. So what what kind of comeback would you offer to your child in that circumstance if you're saying okay if you're at a party and you're offered something mm -hmm. drugs or alcohol that you know you don't want to take what might you say so what might you brainstorm with them so my students have come up with things like um i'm not into that thanks or i'm an athlete i'm not i i, it, I won't play as well in lacrosse so I can't touch that stuff or you know I it can be real or my parents would kill me mm -hmm. if they found out but something that I recommend that parents do is to have that conversation with their parent with their child and say what are some things that you could say because if they come up with it themselves it will feel more organic yes. and natural in the moment and they'll be more likely to remember it but the key thing is reminding them that no one can make you take anything or do anything that you don't want to do and uh if, but it's very hard in those in the moment, impulsive moments to exercise uh, that free will to do that if you're trying to fit in and if you're 14 and you just you really like the boy who just offered you uh, his, the, to vape with him and or whatever it happens to be, it, there are there can be interference. And so even talking about that interference in advance, what are the kinds of things that would make it harder mm -hmm. to say whatever it is you would say in that situation? Mm -hmm. Such a, an important conversation to have. And I think it's really valid that we go into 
what if you felt this way as well? Because to think that our child is just able to say no in, in these types of situations so easily without understanding that the pressures are there, that what's going on in their mind and their bodies can compromise what they say and do in that situation. We've got to talk about that um, so that yeah. they're aware that that will happen, that they may feel conflicted and mm-hmm. that they can still go with what they know is the right thing to do even when they feel conflicted. That's right. And I think for kids who struggle with anxiety, the potential for social loss, uh, social risks are even harder. And saying no to somebody who you want to hang out with uh, when you're an anxious kid Mm -hmm. and you crave that acceptance can be even harder. So if your child already suffers from anxiety, to let them know in advance, you know, it might be even harder for you because you so badly want to fit in. So anticipating that and anticipating all that interference that can crop up Mm -hmm. uh, from, from, from anything from fear to wanting to fit in. Yes, I think you're right. I had this conversation very recently with a parent who told me that her daughter came to her to tell her that one of her best friends had sex with a boy who she's been dating Mm -hmm. for three months. And this parent was, was surprised and she was worried, but mostly you know, she just didn't know what to say, ask, or do in that situation. And we did have that conversation of acknowledging that, you know, there's hormones that are playing a role here. There's the pressure that you might feel to to do what other people think you are doing or think you should be doing. Mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. you know, if it's the boy himself in that scenario or if it's, you know, the his friends or, or other people. But I was curious because I knew I was going to be getting on the phone with you. What do you yeah. suggest for parents as they... They aren't just talking about sex hypothetically now, okay? We've done this in elementary school. We're having the sex talk. We should be having the sex talk early on preschool and elementary school, and we've talked about that. Uh, They're talking about sex because it actually might be happening in their age group. So what (laughs) what should they be talking about, and how can they how can they bring it up? Let's 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 sort of take a deep dive into that question. Yeah. So that is that is such a big topic. And I have had a lot of parent nights because it creates so much anxiety for parents. When there was a New York Times article on teens and porn about Mm -hmm. a year ago, I ended up having a a meeting with all of the middle school parents who were interested. Because what do you do? You have your child who is being exposed to all of this sexual imagery. And statistically, even 80% of 11-year-olds are seeing it, whether they want to or not. That exposure is there. Um, They're getting a lot of... uh, misinformation and because they're seeing something that they shouldn't that they might think they shouldn't be seeing in the first place that might be feel taboo they're not going to ask their parent who's knowledgeable to straighten out the facts they're going to find another eighth grader yeah and it's embarrassing and weird and yeah exactly so your story is so fantastic because here you have a situation where this child is going to her parent and saying this is what's happening with my friends really cool it's just like beautiful it's this beautiful opening to jump in and talk about it it's not too personal so the child is probably going to be willing to engage they've introduced it yes so you have this prime opportunity and this window. I mean, it's like they were lobbed, you know, an easy one. I agree. (laughs) I agree. And she was saying, she's like, I was like panicking inside. And I, you know, my initial reaction was, oh, that's, 
too bad, you know, because she knew that this was going to be the sort of drama laden. But then she turned it around because we've had these conversations in the past. <laughs> and yeah. she said, what do you think about that? I was like so excited for her that she asked a question. She's like, I know I was supposed to ask a question. I just wasn't sure what questions <laughs> to ask. So that's the question I asked. I'm like, terrific that you asked that question because her daughter was able to say, I, I think it was a stupid thing to do, but I didn't want to tell her because I didn't want to make her feel bad. But I, I really yeah. think it was a dumb thing for her to do. So the the mom handled it great too because it, that is, the kind of situation where uh, you can say, you know, what are the pros and cons of having sex so young? Like, mm -hmm. what, what do you think the, the risks are to her emotionally? And it's an opening to talk about everything from the fact that engaging in relationships involves vulnerability, you know, just the, the, the spectrum. It's an opportunity to talk about how if you move too quickly, you really miss out on the opportunity to engage in lower level things like holding hands mm. that uh, that's a phase you don't want to skip over if that's what how the parent feels and they can share that with the child uh you know you don't want a child to think that sexuality is only having sex yes. you want them to understand that it can start much earlier you know with a, uh you know looking across the room and catching someone's eye and, and having that crush and most middle schoolers don't understand the difference between a crush and love and physical attraction and don't necessarily understand that physical attraction doesn't mean it's a healthy relationship. So if a child brings up sex on their own like that, you you have so many different directions that you can take. But I would do what that parent did and start with open-ended questions and, and let the child guide you. But give some thought in advance to the kinds of, it goes back to your values, the kinds of things you would want to say in that moment so that if the situation does arise, you're able to steer it a little bit in the way that, in the direction you prefer. Right, exactly. I know that you had even mentioned in your book, um, just to underscore what you were saying about that look across the room that Ginsburg had said, you know, healthy sexuality begins with with simply caring about someone and, mm -hmm. um, and, and that so much of the time given the messages they're getting through through porn and movies it it, it feels like there's this rush to the end um, and instead of this dreamy amazing part that happens in the beginning and the middle before all <laughs> you know before the whole end yeah. and sort of creating the relationship before you dive into the sex part exactly and i think most kids intuitively uh do that. I think mm -hmm. if you look at a typical sixth grade dating relationship, they're not actually going anywhere or doing anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they're yes. their boyfriend and girlfriend in name only. And, yes. you know, for the for the 72 hours that yes. it lasts. Yes. So most <laughs> and of then them they break <laughs> up. It's very sad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very sad. And, and that's Part of it too, you know, preparing kids that there will be some heartbreak yes. and it can be hard, I think is important. Um, in anticipating what it means. And and the other thing is to let your child know, and this is something that Deborah Rothman, who's written a lot about uh, sex, kids and sexuality, mm -hmm. recommends. Anytime your kid starts a new behavior, whether it's dating, what, whatever it happens to be, that's that's a time when they should expect to be having a conversation mm -hmm. with their mm -hmm. parents mm -hmm. about the, those new behaviors. So for those parents who are, are you know, those people in, in the kids' lives who who are hearing this right now and have realized that, yes, of course, they've had some initial conversations about sex, but they haven't really engaged in conversation 
since, you know, since then, since they're in middle school and, and things are beginning to change or they're about to go into middle school and, and they know that there's going to be maybe some relationships and that kind of thing. What what should they be talking about? Like, and how can they bring it up in, in a way that will be palatable to the kids? You know, I think one of the most powerful ways to bring it up is to talk about your own experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, t- I've, my kids are horrified by my middle school I'm dating sure. experiences, horrified. if you can even call them yes. dating experiences. But sharing that, and and it might mean that you're sharing. I didn't date at all, but I remember feeling really left out when my friend Susie started dating, and suddenly she had no time for me. Oh yes, you're you're really just introducing, or you might feel jealous if a few friends are dating. That's normal. You know, you you really want to be normalizing the experiences that are going to blindside them because mm-hmm. they have not had them before and they have not experienced it before. Mm-hmm. And there's something much less terrifying about an emotion if uh, your parent has already pre-screened it for you just a bit. You're still going to experience it yourself, but you'll, you you might at some part of your brain say, oh, I remember my mom talking about this. Mm-hmm. I remember that this can happen. Right, right. And oh, or my there dad. It is. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, and, and there uh, it is. Exactly. Yes, and, and there then, it is. Exactly. And then you want to make sure that they have, that you're giving them developmentally appropriate, you know, factual information about everything from their bodies to puberty to uh, gender identity and reproduction. And not all kids are going to want to talk about it. And that's okay. You don't need to force the issue, but you do need to make sure you have materials available for them. So that might mean that you uh, buy books that you leave in the house and you let them know that they're there for them and you, you're happy to answer questions. Uh, and, and it does also mean saying, I know this is uncomfortable. We're going to talk about this anyway. Yes. If you don't want to get into it too deeply, here's some other materials that you can look at later. Yes. So I remember you saying that. Chunks. Yes. <laughs> I remember you saying tolerate. that. Uh-huh. But, but please, please parents tell them about periods because it is surprisingly uh, terrifying oh, to gosh. girls and a, a, a really to me, a shocking percent of girls get to 11 without having any information. And a lot of kids have their period by 11. So you don't want to be waiting until that point to be talking. Right. Exactly. And to that same anxiety. Yes, of course. And to that same, that same point, many people will wait to talk to kids about porn because they're thinking that they, well, my kids are not going to be having sex at this age and the kids become 11 years old and they still haven't talked about that kind of thing with their with their parents and at age 11 as you mentioned 80 percent of boys have already seen porn so we've got to we've got to talk about periods with our girls we've got to talk about porn with all of our kids and and make sure that they have the information before it happens because it can be very devastating if they don't have the information exactly and they don't understand what they're seeing and i've had many uh, i've had many conversations with middle school uh kids and in this particular case it was boys in a boys group who talked about seeing it before they were ready. Mm. And it was incredibly upsetting to them because they didn't understand what they were seeing. It looked kind of violent. Uh, It looked not at all like something that they wanted to (laughs) ever be a part of, but they couldn't contextualize it because they didn't really know how to bring it up or even really how to explain to their parents what they're seeing. So Mm. you want to, as a parent, start asking questions younger than everything that you think you want to talk about with them, just advance it by a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Because know, especially with the internet, everyone's getting things much younger than right. they used to. So even my, even our health, our sex and our health and wellness curriculum, we've rolled back to 
to starting now in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Everything is just getting younger when kids are getting exposed to information. Exactly, exactly. We interviewed Gail Dines um, and she, of Cultures Reframed, and she mm-hmm. uh, recently they created a uh, a little film that talks about why it's so important to talk to kids about porn. Um, and we certainly could look at that. I also interviewed her on the podcast on how to talk to kids about porn if people are curious about yeah. how, to, how to have that conversation because it is tough. It is uncomfortable. Nobody is saying that it's not, but it's important to have these conversations nonetheless. So Kids yeah. do want to. Yes, and kids do want to. That's a very good point. Absolutely. Now, I know another issue that you talk about your book that is uh, definitely – comes into uh, into play in middle school often is is lying. It sort of becomes a, a, a real issue. So what's going on here? And if your child you find is repeatedly lying to you about mm-hmm. homework or their whereabouts or who they're spending times with, what kinds of conversation starters might you offer to parents or mentors who who are realizing this? So I think you need to figure out first why why are they lying, uh, and you want to be looking at the lie and whatever the transgression is or whatever the behavior is separately. Mm. So, for example, if um, you know if a if a kid breaks a vase by accident, but then they lie about it, you you want to be talking about accidentally breaking the vase differently than you would be talking about um, lying about it because you want to be really emphasizing that that um, honesty matters. So mm-hmm. uh, kid and you, so when it comes to lying in particular, the main thing is getting to the root of the problem. So let's say uh, as an example of a lie, um, a kid says uh, he got, a, uh, he's telling his, all of his friends that he made a travel soccer team that he didn't make. Mm. So in this, in this situation, what's going on here? Uh, this is a, a hard lie to maintain. So it's not a particularly smart lie. Eventually you're probably going to get caught, which is one piece that you would, that you should be explaining to your child. But to me, I would be wondering what does their peer group look like? Do they feel like they fit in? Are they trying to hang out with more athletic kids? Uh, are they trying to impress somebody? Mm. Um, do they have a sense of lacking? Are they jealous of somebody? Because until you figure out what's underneath that lie, you're, you can, you're not going to actually solve that root problem. So let's say that they don't have a very strong sense of self and they don't feel good about themselves and maybe they're not a particularly good soccer player. Maybe that's a clue that you should be looking for an area where they can excel and to get them involved in an activity that where they really feel pride mm. in their ability. Mm, mm. So thinking outside of the box and not sort of just dealing with the issue itself there, but actually widening the, the net uh, as far as so- how to solve the issue. Yeah, because middle school kids usually are lying because they feel pressure, mm. maybe academic pressure, maybe that's why they're cheating, or they are feeling pressure to maintain a certain image or to fit in, whereas younger kids, it might be more wish fulfillment or creativity, and uh, it, may not be, it, it may not be quite as loaded with mm-hmm. a, a much younger child, but for a middle school who's lying, there is a reason for that lie, and if they are cheating, you're going to want to ask them what 
does it take them longer to finish tests than other kids in the class? Do they, is this their hardest class? What about this class is challenging? Maybe there's an underlying learning issue. Maybe the teacher could shed some light on how they're struggling. You can brainstorm ways that they could be more successful. Maybe they need a tutor or they need to go in for extra help. But you really want to be doing with middle schoolers who are lying is figuring out what is the actual problem here and what can we do to, to improve it and then treat the lie separately. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I, it's completely okay that you are struggling in this area. Everyone struggles with something and we will get you the support you need, but it is not okay to be dishonest. Mm-hmm. You, it is not okay to cheat. So you're going to have to retake the exam and study. You're going to need to make amends, whatever it is you're going to need to do to make it right but you're treating that lie as a separate issue from whatever that underlying problem is. Mm-hmm. Thank you for giving us those words. I'm sure people are very grateful for that. Something that you said sort of just triggered something in my mind. A parent came to me because his son lost a lot of his friends this year. You know, mm. talking about social pressures. He He's yeah. thought of as sort of annoying, but also the friends he was spending time with mm-hmm. were getting into experimentation, drugs and alcohol that he wasn't into. Yeah. There's a lot of in-group and out-group behavior in middle school. It's sort of a clustering of certain groups and also a pushing away of people who are different or who might challenge your social status or what you believe in. So how can we first encourage open-mindedness and empathy and and sort of reaching across the aisle in middle school when inclusivity and and challenging social norms isn't exactly the name of the game and and what are we to say to those kids whose friends have kind of moved on and left them behind so that's hard and i think the very first thing you want to do is validate that for them and empathize with them and explain that that you know they're in pain and that you're there for them and that you you want to listen to them. So you don't want to say it's going to be fine or mm. you're not a loser if they say I'm a loser. You know, you want to validate what it is that they're going through because it is very real in the moment heartbreak for them when they lose their friends. So validate it for them first and then say, let's talk about some things that we could do to make this better. Uh, some of it you can do with the child. Maybe if they have, do they need to work on some social skill deficits? Do they know how to enter a conversation? Do they always brag instead of asking other kids questions? Or, you know, are they looking to impress? There could be some very basic social skills. Do they always cheat when they're out uh, playing basketball hmm. with their friends? These There can be very small tweaks that you could make to really improve their social life if you can figure out what's getting in their way. And talk to their coaches, talk to their PE teachers, talk to their classroom instructors, talk to their school counselor, talk to your their friends' parents, you know, get other information and see if you can figure out what's happening. In that situation, I would I would commend the child for realizing it was the wrong friend group. I would really give them props for that to say, you know, I'm proud of you. It's not easy to give up friends who you like because they're engaging in things that are don't mesh with your values. You know, that's a tough thing to do. So I want to give you some credit for that. So I would start with that as well, you know, focusing on the strengths. And then in terms of fitting in, you want to, very similarly to the to the example of the kid who was lying because he wanted to be perceived as athletic when he wasn't, you want to help this child find the area where they're likely to shine. So you can work on likability skills. You know, Mitch Princeton, who wrote Popular, talks about mm-hmm. this a lot. You can work on likability skills, uh, being kind, being generous, helping people out. Uh, but the things that give you status, whether it's being really good at sports or in some communities, it could be because your parent is a religious leader or you have a lot of money, whatever it happens to be in that particular community, that's out of your control. But you can help a child find 
where their strengths and interests align and where they're likely to engage with other kids who who will be better fits for them. Mm-hmm. And even in the school setting, the teachers might have or the counselor might have some good suggestions for kids who might be a good match for them and can and can pour some gasoline on it, maybe invite them to lunch together. Okay, so if a, a parent understands that the child is lacking some social skills in the case that you were, were talking about then, are mm-hmm. you suggesting that the parent or the coach that they came to is is uh, saying to them, do you, do you need help with some of these things? Would you like to work on these things with me? There's a couple of things, you know, some, some things I noticed. What, what do you think about that? How do we sort of bring that on? Like, hi, I'm about to teach you about social skills. It's a, it's a little <laughs> awkward. So what do you suggest about that? Well, coaches are, you know, the best wing wingmen and women yes. because they are there in real time. As a parent, I would be going to my child's coach and saying, listen, they're struggling socially. Tell me what you're seeing. And in real time, if you could give them a, an assist, you know, tell my child when he is cheating or when he is being too aggressive or when he's not picking up the social signals from another kid that he should back down. Mm-hmm. Call him on it in real time, not in a judgy way or in a way that's very overly critical, but in a helpful way. And they could even pull them aside and say later and say, you know, hey, I I noticed that when you did X, Y, or Z, it didn't, it looked like it didn't work out very well for you. So I would suggest trying, you know, A, B, or C next time. And coaches are, 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 are so wonderful because they don't carry the same judgment that parents do. Kids might be more open to the feedback from them. Right. And right. it's it's more social and interactive than you're seeing in a classroom. A, a teacher can comment on how they're doing in, during a group project or if a child's never raising their hand or always interrupting or, or has to be the, the uh, you know, the one talking all of the time. They can point that out as well. Mm-hmm. But coaches, I think, are just a fantastic resource for right. parents. Absolutely. And no, not to mention coaches are often the sort of superheroes in the child's life. They really, you know, children tend to look up to their coaches so much. And we have so many great coaches that listen in onto this podcast. Um, and they are really important in the lives of, of the kids that they work with. So I, I appreciate what you're saying there. I know before we get to our top tip, I have this like one more thought about, because I, I circled it in my book. I just like what you said, but also it just, you know, I just think it's, it happened to align with um, an interview I did with Alfie Cohn, where you said, mm-hmm. tell kids you love them for who they are, not what they do. This is something that he says, and it's something that you said regarding perfectionism and, and failure. I feel like mm-hmm. this age group, um, you know, they they have to, you know, as you were talking about, like, oh, there's so many pressures. And why are they lying? Well, maybe they, you know, have academic pressures or social pressures. And, you know, failing can feel like, like, like they are a failure, like they are a loser. So what is your message to parents that you really want them to relay to kids about making mistake, making mistakes and failure and perfectionism? So perfectionism is so hard as a trait and you definitely want to get in there and combat it early when you start to see it. Uh, it can become much worse with time and, and as particularly as they enter high school. So if you have a perfectionist child, first of all, you need to understand what it is, and it's a form of fear. They're trying to control the variables they can, and they 
at some point for many of these perfectionist kids, they don't even know themselves why it's so impactful. Mm -hmm. So stopping and asking them a few questions, you know, it, let's talk about whether your, your self expectations are reasonable. Mm -hmm. Are you, are they shooting for the moon when they really, when it's unrealistic? Mm -hmm. Are they setting themselves up in a way for, for disappointment? And then walks them through it. Okay, let's say you get a C on this quiz. You know, if they're walking around saying, oh my God, I can't get a B. If I get a B, I'm going to die. You know, you're not going to die. Yes, I am. I'm literally going to die if I get a B. And you want to, okay, well, let's walk through it. So let's say you get a B. What does that look like? What does that feel like? How could you handle it? What would you do in this in this situation like that? Would you go to your teacher? Would you study differently? Let's talk about it. And then what? And then what? And usually when you go through it all the way to the end, kids realize that the worst case scenario is much worse in in the hypothetical than it is when they when they walk through all the different steps. And then in the in the moment moments, like if the child won't go to sleep because they're so busy working late at night and they just will not stop, I, I think parents in middle school can lay down the law and say, you know what, we're done for today or mm -hmm. you know, not, at, not at that moment, but give them warning ahead of time. At nine o'clock, you must be done. You must be in bed or at eight o'clock. So you have an hour to unwind. You must be done. So let's talk about how you can get done what you need to get done and let them see you also saying, you know what? I didn't finish all the work I needed to do, but that's okay. There's always tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very important messages at a time where it feels, you know, everything feels very big and, and pressurized and important. Um, and it's hard to see that what you're doing in that moment may not ha have the cataclysmic effect that you would think. And sometimes I would imagine it would be uh, a thoughtful to, look back at some of the other times when your child felt that way and then realize that, you know, after the fact that it, it didn't amount to as, quite as much so that they can look back and, and, and apply the same knowledge that, oh, yes, you remember you, you studied uh, until uh, 12 o'clock at night for that. And, and then it turned out that it was just this very, you know, <laughs> easy circumstance yeah. or not a big deal. And I and, and kids look at parents and it looks like a straight line from A to B that their parents never hit bumps in the road, never had mm. experienced failure along the way, never changed course. I mean, my, my kids know I got a D in seventh grade math. They know I got a C in 10th grade chemistry. Like I am very vocal about, you know, my own uh, failures along the way and my own bumps in the road. And they um, and I. I do that to inoculate them to a certain extent. You know, it's going to happen. You are going to have times when you struggle more than other times in a course, and that's okay. That's that's actually helpful because you can't be good at everything. No. If you were good at everything, how would you ever figure out what you should be doing with your life? This is this is good. This is good information that you can use. And parents need to also check their own anxiety. I think that when mm. it comes to achievement pressure, we often are transmitting messages inadvertently uh, about achievement and about, you know, what college are they going to go to seven years from now? Oh, so we, <laughs> you know, we need to, be, we need to be checking, checking ourselves as well, because what's the greater gift that we can give them that we raise a child who never gets anything less than an A and is a complete ball of nerves and an anxious mess, or we raise a child who can roll with the punches, which is what life looks like for all of us. You know, we mm -hmm. want them to be able to cope with those setbacks. Yes, yes. The classic. And middle school is so low stakes. It's the perfect time. Yes, it is the perfect resiliency. time. Oh, very good point. We have a classic story of me getting a C minus in math, my uh, calculus in, in college. And honestly, my whole family cheered because it was just the hardest class I've ever <laughs> taken. And I was like, woohoo, C minus, you know. 
<laughs> you know, just yeah, sometimes exactly. from perspective is actually helpful. You know, you can't be good at everything. Exactly right. You can't be good at everything. If you overfreight that one grade, they might say, okay, well, then I'm not a math student. I may as well give up and never do math again. What you want them to say, what you want to be transmitting is, okay, so that test was hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That has nothing to do with you as a math student. That was a test that was hard for you. Mm-hmm. And we're going to move on. It's a history test now. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's a really good point. So tell us your top tip. What do you hope people come away with after reading your book or listening to this interview about middle schoolers and the skills that they need to thrive? You know, I think the the main point that I'd like to convey, which you touched on briefly a few minutes ago, is that kids this age are already so insecure and so self-critical and so likely to foreclose on options prematurely and not take risks, whether they're social risks or athletic risks or academic risks, that this is a time to really remember that while middle school matters, and a principal said this to me today, and I thought it was great. He said, middle school matters, but not really, you know, like the stakes are, the stakes are so low. This is the perfect time to try on different identities, to try out different activities, to not pigeonhole a kid in one direction or the other. You don't want to impose a label on them. You really want them to be experimenting and, and trying lots of different things and taking risks and let them do that during this phase of life because once it gets to high school uh, their options are more constricted they don't get to have as much freedom to experiment and this is such a prime opportunity to get to know who they are and to know that their parents love them unconditionally and are there consistently as their coach uh, and and to have that that confidence that your parents are going to accept you for whoever you are will allow the kids to take more risks Mm. in middle school when when they're feeling so uh, self-critical and so judged by others. Mm. So beautifully said, so important for them to take risks during this particular time and to convey to kids, we want you to take risks. We understand that there will be mistakes made. We will love you along the way. We're here to help you. But we also are are here to, to to watch you, you know, get your feet underneath you and, and, you know, admire who you are becoming. It's, it's such an important thing to be able to relate to kids as uh, they start to waver in their self-confidence and, um, and, and start to do a lot of these things on their own, figuring out who they are and, and what it means to the, to them, uh, to do all of these different activities. I, I really understand that. That makes a lot of sense. And, and, I also want parents to know this is a really joyful time. It's not a time to dread. Kids are actually still very much connected to their parents. They want you helping them. They want you there as their safety net. So it's, and yet they're also so fun and entertaining and conversational. So it's really a, a fun time to get in there and parent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love this age. I, I find them so intriguing, so interesting. Of course, <laughs> that's being said by somebody who does not yet have a middle schooler. So check back with me in <laughs> a year or two. Okay. okay. So <laughs> what's the resource of the week? Where can we go to get more information about you and your book and all of the great things you're doing? Uh, so the book is available anywhere books are sold at this point. And I have a website, phyllisfagel.com, which has my articles from the Post and other publications. Uh, I also tweet quite a, quite a lot yes. at, at pfagel. Yes. Those I'm, are probably the best places to find me. <laughs> I love your Twitter feed. I am on it. Thank you. I am looking at it every day. And uh, actually, it comes up 
pretty much first. So for me, uh, it does. It does. <laughs> I, I must be because I'm, I'm constantly following you. So I feel like the things that you p- provide um, in terms of the articles and perspective is, is so invaluable. So I would definitely encourage people to, to follow you and read your articles. And I just want to thank you for being on the show today and providing your strategies and your insight. And just you're so connected to this age group. You have such a wealth of information and ideas and empathy for this age group. I I just really enjoy your perspective and appreciate the incredible amount of work that you did on Middle School Matters and and that you do in in all of your articles and in life. So thank you so very much. Thank you and thanks for having me on. I, I really enjoyed talking to you as well. Oh, well, thank you. And I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours, so let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. We can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. You know, I'm also on Instagram at drrobinsilverman. I will be going back and forth with Phyllis Fagel all this week talking about her amazing work that she's done on Middle School Matters. We'll be going back and forth with memes that I've created you know, highlighting some of the incredible quotes that she's said during this entire interview. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people will learn more about these outstanding solutions and use them in their own homes. I hope you will share this podcast with anybody you know whose child is going into middle school or who coaches or who teaches middle school because these are the solutions that we need. These are the strategies we need. We need this perspective. I truly appreciate it it. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts up there, and so many show notes are up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I know you probably heard things today and you said, oh boy, I'm not ready for that. I, I should have already been ready for that. I had that conversation. I messed up. That's okay. That's why we, we're doing this. You're getting all the information you need and you can do it over. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parents you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information, 